Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 95 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're speaking with Brian Gadawa, author, screenwriter, and film critic. He's got some really fascinating ideas about faith-based content in the 21st century, as well as some tips for conservatives who want to work around industry gatekeepers. You might just be inspired to start creating something new after our chat. This week's show is sponsored by the new Harry Potter prequel. This franchise runs an autopilot. Why bother even name-checking the title? You know, I almost turned down the chance to interview last week's HitCast guest, and I'm really glad I didn't. Anthony Camille lost his radio job after some racially insensitive tweets came to light. Reporters, as they often do, helped transform those comments into a fireable offense. Sirius XM did the rest. But that image hung in my mind when I was offered a chance to chat with him for the podcast. I can't interview him, I thought. Why not? Would I turn down a chat with, like, Alec Baldwin? After all his off-screen activities? I'm certain that they dwarf whatever Kumia did that day, or any other day sometimes. What about other stars with shaky past? Should I kind of write them off too? No one's writing off Baldwin at this point. He just keeps on keeping on. You know, I didn't even know the full story behind Kumia's situation. Maybe he was justified. Maybe he just had a very bad day. Maybe he sincerely regretted things he said. Should I be part of that media machine that just wants to wipe him off the face of the landscape, despite his talent, despite his intentions? Then I started listening to his show, heard on Compound Media. That's his home base. I was shocked again. You're not supposed to make jokes like that. That's wrong. Wait, why is it wrong? I've been brainwashed into thinking certain jokes are now off limits, inappropriate. You can't say them. The same jokes I laughed at 20 years ago when I used to listen to the radio with Howard Stern and other people. They were now off-limit. You can't tell them anymore. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I've actually been internalizing what the PC police have taught me for years. So I just let go. I started laughing quite a bit. You know, when I was growing up, I remember some terrible jokes I heard on the schoolyard. When the Challenger exploded, uh, there was a connection to our school we made some really kind of off-color jokes about that situation. You know, humor is funny. It sometimes is a way to kind of process really bad bits of information. I've been laughing at tasteless jokes for years. Why, why do I have to stop now? Why do we have to stop now? On his show, he tells the jokes that I used to laugh at. And no one can stop him because he's got his own podcast network. Now, is his show for everyone? Absolutely not makes me feel like a teenager sometimes with some of the sexual material, some of the lusting after women he talks about, and his crew as well. But that's okay. We can do that, can't we? That kind of material should be heard. That's what, that's what free speech is about. It's what podcasting is about. It's what the radio used to be about. That's no longer the case. But thanks to people like Anthony Camilla, it is again. And I'm okay with that. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. 
Here's the hit tweet of the week. Mark Hamill is woke. Just how woke Luke Skywalker? Well, his recent tweet, to my mind, broke the woke meter on Twitter. It's just science. Here's his take on how we should run politics for the foreseeable future. For centuries, men have had their chance to rule government with middling to poor results. Who's ready to let women take charge completely? Just women. I know I am. He was guessing he won't be voting for Nikki Haley for president anytime soon. His brand of woke, it only goes so far. My hit tip of the week is Bodyguard. The British show was a smash overseas, and now it's Netflix's buzziest import. Richard Madden stars as David Budd, a security, security officer designed to protect the home security official. It's a task fraught with some complications, let's just put it that way. I'm being mild. The six-episode series really caught me with this opening incident. There's a, a terrorist attack, and of course it was instantly deemed Islamophobic by the usual suspects. Ugh. Yes, that's me yawning. The series gets a bit thornier from there, and I have to say I'm only in episode three, but I am absolutely hooked. There's great interpersonal dynamics. There's the specter of the character's PTSD. It hovers over everything he does and says. Really fascinating stuff. Now, there's talk of a second season, but you know that's not going to show up on U.S. Shores or Netflix for quite a while. So for now, just let's enjoy our first taste of Bodyguard, courtesy of Netflix. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. Now let's get to this week's HitCast interview. Brian Gadawa loves movies. He's written a few too, including the Kiefer Sutherland thriller To End All Wars. He's also a self-published novelist, turning his back on traditional publishing houses with really sensational results. His faith kiss stories don't follow the traditional Christian path, and he's proud to be both different and thought-provoking. In the primeval history of Genesis, an ancient war began between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Fallen angels called Watchers begot a race of giants called Nephilim. Their goal, to stop the bloodline of the promised seed. But God had other plans. Chronicles of the Nephilim is a biblical fantasy series of novels that charts the rise and fall of the Watchers and the Giants in the stories of the Bible and in between. Read all eight novels from Noah Primeval all the way to Jesus Triumphant. Available on Kindle and paperback at Amazon.com. Go to ChroniclesOfTheNephilim.com and enter a world of ancient history and biblical imagination. That's ChroniclesOfTheNephilim.com. See what I mean? His book, Hollywood Worldviews, Watching Films with Wisdom and Discernment, offers a really smart guide to appreciating films in a new, exciting way. Long story short, you should be following him wherever he goes. And if you're not already, just go to the show notes page at HollywoodInToto.com and I'll show you how. I'm pleased to have him on our HitCast and I think he's got a lot to say and a lot of inspiring things to say too. I think that's a great combination. Here's my chat with Brian Kadawa. Brian, thank you for joining the show. You know, I know you're a prolific writer and you do 
film writing and books and courses. I'm just kind of curious, as a creative type, I'm always interested in what's on your front burner at the moment? What are you working on right now? Well, um, I've got a couple movies that I'm working on, but unfortunately I can't, I can't say what they are, but I'm working with the producers of the movie Gosnell. So that'll get, at least give you a hint of the direction these guys are. I think, um, uh, Ann McElhaney and, um, Phila McElair, the producers of Gosnell are the most courageous, brave filmmakers in Hollywood because they make, they tell stories, they tell the truth to power. They speak the truth to power with their movies. And so it's an uphill battle, but they're independent filmmakers. But so I'm working with them and, and we've got some cool stuff coming up. Sorry, I can't talk about it now, but I will contact you when we can. Okay. And, uh, and, and I'm just, just fact check what you said. You're absolutely right. I've actually had Anne on this podcast a few weeks back and those two are amazing. And the yeah. way that they approach the material is so interesting and thoughtful and straightforward and it kind of in a way takes their critics out of the knees because they're not getting into the partisan propaganda games they really just tell it like it is and often that's the most powerful journey yeah and because they have a uh, background in journalism and documentaries they tend to stress um, you know, the factual factuality, even in movies like Gosnell, where you're watching this thing and you're going, can you, I can't believe that that's not possible. And then at the end of the movie, they show you the pictures and the videos that show you the movie was exactly spot on with the most bizarre things that were in there. And they have that mentality. He's done verbatim type theater. So he really, meaning uh, he'll do like theater from the grant from a grand jury trial and just have actors just recount what happened in the investigation or the grand jury trial to show you the truth, you know, and but they, but but they do it with drama. And I love that kind of stuff. I'm totally on board and hope hopefully we'll be doing some some great projects. Uh, they'll, they'll be coming out in a couple of year in a year or so. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. I know you can't say it, but uh, maybe we can reveal some information here first on the podcast. Uh, one of the things I was looking at your background, and you've got a, a, a both a marketing background and also design uh, illustration. Is it specifically what's your sort of creative specific arts training? Actually, I've always been a visual uh, artist when I since I've been young. I've always been an artist, but I started out visual, and then um, I love always loved movies. And, um, but when I got, when I went to college, I got a degree in, in graphic design and I wanted to do movies and, and my, my, my whole worldview as a Christian changed when I discovered Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a Christian theologian in the set. He died like in the late seventies, early eighties, I think. And he was the first Christian, uh, uh, intellect who actually, uh, valued the arts and in showed how the Christian worldview can be integrated without being propagandistic, etc. And that's what changed my life. And, and I started realizing the power of movies that I loved all my life. So I started to, to basically learn um, movie storytelling on the side. And, and I didn't want to be a starving artist by just jumping out there. So I had my day job for, you know, decades uh, as a graphic designer, but I had always pursued movie writing on the side. And, and then what happened was my first movie uh, finally got made in, in about 2001. That was To End All Wars, which stars Kiefer Sutherland and Robert Carlyle and stuff. And that's sort of become a classic amongst uh, Christians for, uh, uh, well, a chariots of fire for the new generation, you know, kind of a secular movie with a Christian worldview. And uh, but since that time, I've also come in recent years, I've, I've sort of blossomed and um, started writing novels. And the reason why was because 
oh, about eight eight or so years ago now, I, uh, I I had this great idea to do a movie about a Bible character, and I thought, but Hollywood will love it because it's got weird things, giants and angels and stuff like that. And I thought this is going to be cool, and I I wrote a script for the movie Noah, and I called it Noah Primeval. And um, then shortly after that, I realized I found out that Darren Aronofsky was making his movie. No, and I, I knew, OK, you know, he's he's going to beat me to the punch. So I, I realized, well, how can I get my stuff out so that it won't look like I copied him or something? And I decided to turn it into a novel. And then it exploded. Noah Primeval became this bestseller, and and it, it launched me on writing a whole series called Chronicles of the Nephilim, which is basically these, you know, retelling certain Bible stories where giants appear or the Watchers, these divine beings from heaven, type of thing. Sort of weird, bizarre stuff in the Bible, which I'm not afraid to 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 address and and to you know understand. And uh, I, I thought Christians would like reject me because I was pushing the envelope of the imagination. You know, I was doing what Lewis and Tolkien like to do, but I was applying it to the Bible and and I thought Christians were going to reject it, but they didn't. They ended up embracing it. And all the, all the eight books in the series have been bestsellers on the, on the biblical fiction list, Amazon. And so that's kind of become a, a new way of me getting my storytelling out to the masses other than movies, because, you know, movies are very difficult to get made. They're, they're basically impossible. So, you know, you might get a movie made once every few years, you know, and, and there are obviously people more successful than that, but a lot of us are good, but we, it, there's a there's a big pool of people, so the competition is fierce. So you can just just because you're good doesn't mean you're going to get a movie made all the time. So basically, writing that's that's how I I sort of integrate my storytelling and getting it out in many different many different ways. And also, when you're making a movie, there are a million different compromises. Maybe a Quentin Tarantino will have the finished product be exactly what he wants. But yeah. other than that, if you're a screenwriter, if you're a director, you have to kind of take the studio notes. You have to find out what the financiers want. And all yep. of a sudden, your great story that you really felt very proud of and felt like it was very personal and deep, maybe very different than the thing you see on the screen. So, at least yeah, absolutely. A path. And sometimes it's it's for good or bad because, for instance, um, Twindle Wars was uh, you know just a miracle, a blessing. And uh, what often happens is when you're working in the independent realm, as I do. Um, particularly if you got your first film or something and, and it's a breakthrough, you know, they're, they're not going to have much money. So they can't keep redoing things. They can't keep repaying other writers to rewrite you because they don't have the money for it. Right. So I had the blessing of being the only writer on Two End All Wars. And, and, and that's why I'm most proud of that, of course. But uh, there was a lot of input from the director and the producer challenging the story. And that is what makes it you like iron sharpening iron. It, They'll see things I don't catch or sometimes there were things I just I didn't necessarily agree with the director, but it's his picture. And so I try to make my best to make it work. And and it turns out usually those situations, if if, if you're simpatico in terms of vision, you know, with a director, um, then usually it ends up better. You know, even if it's something I don't really like or necessarily agree with, I, I'm forced to become creative and make it work. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I found that actually makes it better. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, the artistic side is a very powerful thing. But of course, we all know the stories of, you know, uh, d uh, writing by committee and sometimes these executives get involved and they don't know anything about story. It's just really pathetic. And they come in and they just rape the, the, the script because, you know, 
they're in control. And that's yeah. that's sad. That does happen. Uh, talk a little bit. You mentioned how you thought you might lose some readers or some fans with some of the harder core elements or maybe even just the action or, or just the fact that it's a little bit grittier than maybe, a, say, a PG rated yeah. movie to make a comparison. Do you think that a, a lot of the faith-based films today are PG, are clean, are yeah. sort of stripped away of that grit, that grime? It, are you critical of those movies or is that sort of they do their stories, they have their place and there are other ways to tell them? I, I'm kind of curious how you approach that kind of that I guess that strain of the of the faith based movie making. Yeah, yeah. I'm look. I I'm I've ne- I've never really liked Christian movies or Christian this or Christian that in in a way. You know, um, I have liked Christian music. I'll admit that, um, but I, I haven't in terms of storytelling and stuff like that. However, I'm not one of the cynical Hollywood types. Uh, there are a lot of Christians in Hollywood who who are elitists and they look down and, and they don't think there's any place for any any explicit Christianity or whatever. I, I'm just not one of those. I'm very open-minded and I believe there's a room for a lot of genres and I consider Christian movies to be a genre or Christian books or whatever, a genre. And, and all genres have requirements. I don't necessarily like all those requirements and so I don't want to write like them. And so I did with my novels and there therefore I couldn't get an agent Christian agent I couldn't get a Christian publisher so I ended up self-publishing them and now I'm blowing away all the traditional published uh, books on on Bible fiction and the reason why is because I did have sex and violence but I tried to do it uh, like the Bible does it I wanted to show sin in all its evil depravity because I believe that in storytelling the power of your redemption in your story is only as powerful as as the accuracy of the sin that you're depicting being d- redeemed from. So if you have this, you know, 1970s, you know, television snidely whiplash version of evil that just isn't gritty or or whatever, it's not going to it's not the res- the redemption's not going to resound as powerful. Yeah. That said, I believe there's a place for family, you know, movies that 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 the family can watch together, you know, and I've I've even written some stuff that hasn't gotten made. I'm willing to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I believe there's definitely a place for that. And I don't have a problem with that. My problem with most of the Christian films has been the the production values, the writing, producing, directing and acting has just been so low level par. But I do believe it's getting a lot better and it just takes time to catch up. For instance, you know, I loved I Can Only Imagine. I, I thought it was a great movie. You know, I loved Soul Surfer. There are there are some of these Christian movies that that are good and they're getting better all the time. So it's getting better all the time. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's been a nice thing to watch. And it is a, a fairly young genre in a sense. So I think that I think the, yeah. the learning curve is, is nice to see. I was kind of curious. I feel like you went the self-publishing route before it was really hip and cool. What's been the secret of that? I mean, obviously, not to dismiss your talent, but what have you learned <laughs> about that process? And are there lessons for other artists who maybe think that they're outside the system and they want to kind of sell some product? Well, I, okay, I'm an evangelist now for self-publishing, so get ready. Uh, yeah, I, I'm promoting it with so many writers because here's the bottom line is, you know, the, yeah, there's prestige and all that of going through traditional publishing, what we call legacy publishing and such. Um, but the problem is, is it's the same problem as with movies as with any of these big businesses that have built up, um, the elites become the gatekeepers and they determine what get, you know, what gets out or what doesn't. And they claim that they're concerned with the audience, but oftentimes they're not listening to the audience evidenced by the fact that, you know, there are, 
you know, I am one of thousands, literally thousands of self-published authors who couldn't get a publisher. And it's not because we're not necessarily good. Uh, it's that a lot of times it's, well, you know, no one wants to read romances now or, or for me, no, you know, Christians don't want Bible stories with uh, too much sin in them or whatever, you know, and um, too much violence, right? And they, they have all these preconceptions because they're gatekeepers and they keep you out. But what happened with self-publishing is because of Amazon, because your our ability now to actually get marketed, you know, you could always put up your own books on your own website, but how do you market it? Amazon itself is the marketing machine that gets the word out and helps you because of that. And that's why there are now thousands of self-published authors who are making, like me, full-time incomes, six figures and up, and blowing away the competition. Like, and, you know, New York Times bestseller list, which is not always, not usually accurate, but, you know, <laughs> it's still there. Uh, it's it's very political, but nevertheless, a lot, you look on that list at any, at any time and, and, you know, as much as half or more are self-published authors. Self-published authors are blowing away all the competition on Amazon. They're making most of the money. So it's like, and, and we're talking, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've heard dozens of them who are like making near million dollars a year self-publishing. So, so the, the reality to me is that there is a market, even if you've got niche, you know, stories, there's a market for all these genres and all these niches, but the traditional publishers over time, they become big and fat and just like anything, just like in Hollywood, they're only looking for the blockbusters. And so they miss the the sleeper hits, you know, the Little Miss Sunshines of this world and stuff, right? And and I, I understand, you know, they're driven by money and therefore they're going to take you if you're already famous, if you're already, you know, got uh, a big audience or, you know, whatever – or they see something in your background and in your story that they think they can make millions on, you know. Um, but there's a lot of mid-level authors now that just aren't being picked up because they're looking for the blockbuster. They need the blockbusters in order to make up for their losses because of the high, how the costs have been skyrocketing because the way they do business. And so, and it's the same thing with Hollywood, right? You know, all the studios are pushing, pushing more towards the big blockbusters, the one blockbuster that will basically pay for the entire year. And sadly, it it still works to a certain degree. But I do think over time, it, it does collapse on itself. And I think the traditional publishing world is already, that's already occurring. There are self-published authors who have turned down lucrative deals because as soon as you get make a lot of money and become famous, even self-published, traditional publishers come after you, right? Because they want to, oh, there's money in this person. And many of the self-publishing including myself, if I got an offer, would, would turn it down because it's like, what you can't do anything for me that I haven't done for myself. So you're not really needed. And, and that's really the case. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. And so there is, uh, there, I think the only stigma on self-publishing is from the elite traditional publishing world. But in terms of audience and readership, the hundreds of millions of Americans and all around the world, you know, uh, it, it's not a, it's not a problem. It's it's just not a stigma. One last lesson about all this, even the big names, even the folks who have kind of cracked the system, they often were rejected, if not once, multiple times. It's a classic story. And I I need to find a link to this. I'll I'll put it in the show notes page about Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood going somewhere, some audition meeting with some, maybe it might've been universal or some major studio. And they were both rejected I think either by their their talent or their physicality wasn't quite right. And of course, 
look what they look what happened to them. So, yeah. you know, it, yeah. that's why self-publishing is so wonderful because you can avoid all that, get your voice out there, and ultimately the, the audiences will decide if, if it's something that's worth their while or maybe it's not their cup of tea, but at least you can kind of connect with them and make that choice yourself. Absolutely. And that's, and now is the time yeah. because, uh, again, because of Amazon mostly and, uh, and, you know, you could say, uh, iBooks, you know, Apple, um, but mostly it's, it's Amazon. Uh, and, and to me, like I say, I think the key to it is, is distribution. It's always been the key to the success of, of the arts and commerce is you could have a great product, but if you don't have a means to distribute it and a market, a marketing, uh, a plan attack, the word doesn't get out and people don't hear about it. And so consequently now though, because Amazon has things like also bots, you can buy little ads for your books that will, you know, when people are on Amazon, they're already prepared to buy, right? So an ad on Amazon for your little book is like a thousand times more effective than throwing out some banner ads on the internet. Those don't, those aren't just aren't even effective. And so they've got this whole system of all kinds of things you can do from advertising to their own algorithms that help you sell your book. Like for instance, your pretty much any first or not any book that you put out the first time you put it out, uh, and this is for every book, uh, the first 30 days, Amazon actually gives you a little bit of an artificial boost. I don't know. I, I don't know their, how their algorithms do it, but it's kind of like they they make you see, they they get you, the, the key is visibility. So they help you get more visibility when you first release a book. And then if it grabs and it starts to do well, then it sort of, you know, obviously helps itself. So, you know, like I say, most of my books are on the top 10 or 20 in biblical fiction on Amazon. So when, whenever people want, oh, I want to get a book, but I want to do a, I want to, I want to read a book about a Bible story. Where do I go? Well, look at the best selling on Bible fiction on Amazon. And then that's, that's how, that's how it sort of, once you get in those top 10 and 20 lists, it, it, it helps sell like a, like its own sales machine, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So yeah. yeah. Well, thank God for technology. And it's just been a wonderful yeah. thing. And also social media. Uh, we're talking with Brian Gadawa, author, screenwriter, film critic, and Probably a half dozen more titles I forgot to mention, but well, there's always press for time. But I want to talk about movies. You're a huge movie fan. You, you think cinematically. I was kind of curious if you've seen anything lately that maybe it's too pretentious to say gives you hope for Hollywood, but just maybe resonated with you that you'd like to share. Oh, man. <laughs> you got me on that one. Let's see here. I, I, you know, the thing is, is I watch a lot of Netflix. I watch a lot of stuff. And um, so I tend to like, Forget specifics, you know, because everything gets all caught up. I'm trying to let's see if I can find my um let, let some me, of my stuff here. But I, I, I will line. say this. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Please, please do. But just to to start off though, um, I wanted to say that my um, uh, I've been going to the theater a lot less these days. Um, I I've always been a movie nut most of my life. Never really liked television uh, until Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. And now I think the best writing is on Netflix, best storytelling is on Netflix, right? It's on basically, uh, you know, series. And so I'm watching so much of that. I just don't like to go to the theater that much anymore. It's, I don't need to, you know, it's like, I just finished uh, daredevil season three, right? It's like fantastic. It's got this whole, you know, and 
you know, they're not afraid to have spiritual themes in there. Like Daredevil is all about Daredevil losing and regaining his faith. I mean, like it's truly amazing sometimes. I'm I'm surprised how how bold they'll actually allow viewpoints. To, and that's because Netflix is a lot more open to the creatives. Mm-hmm. It's challenging the studio system. So I've been watching a lot of series and enjoying series um, like I never have before. But, you know, Daredevil is one good example of, of one of the latest ones I've loved. I agree, too. And just one quick point. It's what I hear the most out of every movie conversation is, yeah, I just don't go to the movies as much as I used to. I can't tell you how often I hear that refrain. And I think it's reflected in a lot of things. I think it's sort of Hollywood actors getting very political and and maybe kind of pushing people aside. But I also think, like you said, I can just stay home and watch the third season of Daredevil, have a great time, and maybe watch two or three episodes back to back in the comfort of my home. Or I could roll the dice, go to the movies, pay a lot of money, risk a guy or a gal in front of me talking through the entire process, and then seeing a clunker. So it, it's almost a no-brainer. Totally. But uh, it's at least there is that Netflix and its competitives. That alternative has been wonderful. Uh, yeah. I, you're a critic and a creator. And I was kind of curious how that works within your mind because I think sometimes critics forget about the pain that the creators have. And I think the fact that you're a creator as well kind of gives you an edge on other people in your field. Uh, talk about that tension. Is it is it tension between the two sides of you, or, and how does that kind of balance? Yeah, technically it is. Um, technically it is because, you know, you might say the critic side – it, the analyzing um, that's the, you know, the worldview, the means, the messages, the, you know, that kind of stuff, as well as, um, you know, production values or what have you. Um, but mostly I, I, I focus more on worldview and story structure. That's sort of my emphasis of appreciation. And, and yeah, that, that's, uh, what is that? The left brain, I can't remember left or right brain, but that's the one side of the brain. And then the creative is definitely the other side of the brain. And, and the creative is really, uh, it's it's more about almost like really working within boundaries. It's like finding the boundaries and then releasing yourself to to work freely up to the edge of those boundaries. What I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people have this, you know, notion of and some even artists do, too. It's like, you know, untrammeled freedom to do anything I want. And that's what true creativity is. And no, that's that's actually narcissism. (laughs) And in fact, the greatest works of art in history have all been um, restricted by boundaries, you know, whether it's it's Michelangelo's, you know, uh, um, you know, the the popes or whatever, who 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 forced him to paint the Sistine Chapel and it needed to be exactly what they wanted, but he painted it greatly within those parameters, right? And so, you know, it's that kind of a thing. And and I as a as, so for me as a storyteller, I I love boundaries, whether it's budget or whether it's, you know, you, you know, we uh we have to we have to have a certain amount of if you're if you're doing a true story, you know, you have to stay within the facts because you don't want to lie. But but you've got to be creative. And so it's finding that balance between the boundaries of truth and fiction and, and, and making it so it's still an honest, truthful portrayal. And that's a That's a to me. That's the biggest balance of all, because in, in today's era, in today's you know world, I think we see all that throughout our culture. Um, you know, as evidence of the you know, current election fraud and just everything that seems to go on, it uh, and and Google and Facebook and how they just don't care about 
truth or fairness and they'll lie and change the algorithms to suit their political or particular agendas and they have no moral problems with what they're doing they even you know they'll talk openly about it you know mm -hmm. that's the kind of of dishonesty and truthfulness has lost its its impact i think and truthfulness as in you know being honest uh, fair you know authentic um, really yeah, authentic. And but I mean, you know, the the postmodern sense of truthfulness is my truth, you know, true for me. So I don't mean that <laughs> sense. I mean, it more like objectively, you know, what I mean, uh -huh. and and so consequently, yeah, you know, these and what's so ironic is that really, you know, my argument has always been from my first book, Hollywood Worldviews, which I wrote, you know, years ago about how to watch movies with wisdom and discernment. And it's really helped a lot of Christians to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, to be able to draw good truths from movies and, and not you know, reject them because, oh, it had a sex scene that I didn't like or something, you know, mm -hmm. or it's, you know, whatever, too violent or something. And just helping them to become better discerners. Well, part of that is realizing that, you know, actually good storytelling has a moral compass to it, you know. And if you, it's so funny because even though we live in a world that's lost its moral compass, Hollywood still has to tell stories with a moral compass because if they don't, they won't make money because stories without a moral compass are not desirable. Classic example. Yeah. Now, look, I, I'll admit that there are some that break the boundaries, like, for instance, you know, Game of Thrones. Right. So so Game of Thrones is this nihilistic world um, that that, you know, it's very it's very depressing. If you know, it's a very well told story. But it. I think that even that move, even that story, at least I haven't read the books, but I do. I, I can say that even in that that world, there still has to have some morality, right? I mean, the first season, everyone was just like, when Ned Stark gets killed, it's like to me, I'm almost like, I don't want to watch it, you know. And then the rest, I kept going because it's good storytelling. And it's partly my job, and you know, I'll admit I like sometimes the darkness, you know. But uh, but if it if it just continues on without any hope of redemption or any goodness i can't stick with stuff but what happens john snow he gets resurrected he becomes the new good guy i don't know what's going to happen to him but and he struggles but the point is is that even game of thrones has this little little, little bit of light that has to be there or otherwise it would just people wouldn't people wouldn't want to watch it you know yeah and even and like so, walter white from breaking bad even though he did a lot of awful things he, Absolutely. In his mind was thinking, I need to protect my family and prepare them for when I'm gone, when I, after I die. And that but, was his motivation, even though he did some, you know, along the way. He Absolutely. One, one of the arguments that I made at, at the time was, um, I think that what it was, was it, it was a tragedy. And and if you understand, you know, if you know classical storytelling, comedy has an up ending, tragedy has a down ending, right? But the truth is, is that tragedies are actually moral stories because what tragedies are is they show you what they show you how not to be by showing the negative consequences of behavior or values. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you watch Otello or, or, you know, whatever, you know, Hamlet, you know, you, you, you see them because they refuse to discern what their personal flaw is, it leads them to destruction. And that is just, it's a reverse version of positive morality. Hmm. It's what Aquinas called the way of the negative, right? It shows you this is what happens if you don't live according to morality. And I think that that's ultimately uh, what Breaking Bad was. And that's why it was so powerful, because we all knew it. And we all knew he deserved to die in the end. My big complaint about that was his 
death was too anticlimactic. It should have been a lot bigger. Like, you know how you have the guy falling from a, a cliff or a mm-hmm. great height or something. You know, look, I'm not saying he should have done that, but his death was just a little bit too uh, too simplistic and too, it needed to be more grandiose for us to feel the catharsis of seeing justice done on this guy. And and by the way, here's another thing. When I was first started watching Breaking Bad, it was a transforming moment in my my life, even as a storyteller, because by the third episode, Walter White watches uh, Jesse, I think his, whatever his name is, Jesse mm-hmm. is his helper. He, he, he lets his girlfriend die in her vomit. And, and I turned off the show and I stopped watching it for like months until I started hearing other people talking about ramifications down the road and things. And I started, okay, I'll give it another chance. I started watching it. And I'm glad I did because my point at that time was what happens is if you have a hero do truly despicable evil things, then he's no longer desirable to root for unless there's something redemptive in his character in, 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 or is, is there is there redemption offered? And that's what you're looking for, right? Or the other side is the tragedy. And once I realized, well, this is a tragedy. This is showing how a man falls and descends into the negative consequences. And once I believed that that's what it was about, then I, I could follow it through to the end. And sure enough, sure enough, it was because they understood that's what was needed, which is ultimately a very powerful moral compass you know and so yeah that's the problem that a lot of people you know don't like my wife and 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 other people where they can't handle the negative stuff that a lot of movies have up front or a lot of storytelling has up front because i I try to tell them like don't worry this you know most movies are about redemption so if they start out negative by the end they're going to learn not to be you know that's usually how most of them are not all of them but but most all of the good hollywood movies are like that and i think that speaks to both hollywood's uh, um, need for money that they know that that will be successful but also the the humanity of the storytellers that they may differ from your view or my view about life or politics but in the day there's sort of their inner humanity can't help but peek through but uh Brian, I love these insights, and if you want to get more insights just like them, you can visit Godawa.com, and that also has a lot of links to your different books and projects and all the things you've got going on at any given time, including the Chronicles of the Nephilim, also the Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and your brand new book, Judgment, Wrath of the Lamb. That comes out later this month in November. So, Brian, thank you so much. I, I want to talk to you again, and certainly about that, uh, that upcoming movie project. You've kind of whet my appetite, and uh, I appreciate your time. You bet. Thanks for having me, Christian. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. This episode is sponsored by schwanns.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm. Good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. 
Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details.